This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 27. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. This is God's word. For the past several weeks, we've been looking into what it means to be a Christian. And it's because Christians today, they're defined by uh, music, they're defined by the kind of books they read, some Christians are defined by the churches they attend. Maybe some Christians are, are, are uh, viewed um, or defined by their views on dating or their views on po- certain political agendas. But those things are all very nuanced, right? And it tells us more about certain types of Christian culture. What does it mean to be a Christian? And when you get to the root of the answers, there's a language. There's a language that tends to articula- articulate the DNA of the Christian life. And we use words that are not always commonly used, words like repentance, words like resurrection, words like the cross, words like the centrality of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, this passage that we just read, it's one of the revealing passages where Jesus Christ teaches us about finding yourself, spiritual finding. And so he says in verse 25, he says, if you do this and this, you're going to find it. Find what? Find what? He says, you're going to find your life. If you lose your life, you give up your life, you're going to find it. He says, you're going to find yourself. The Greek word he actually uses here is psyche. It's where we get the word psychology. It means when you give up yourself, When you lose yourself, that's when you find your real self. That's when you find your soul. Jesus is saying here, here's how you find your real self. Here's how you're going to be able to connect with who you really are. There's no greater urgent modern issue than that. Why? 
Ernest Becker, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. His seminal piece of uh, literature that he's written, he won the Pulitzer Prize for it, um, is The Denial of Death. But he actually wrote a, a, another book called The Birth and Death of Meaning. And it's a pretty famous book. Um, and, and in the book, he really says this, the summation of the book, and he says it here, he says, most of our life is in large part a rationalization of our failure to find out who we really are, what our basic strength is, and what it is, uh, what thing it is uh, meant to work upon the world. Most of our life is a rationalization of our failure to find out who we really are, to find ourselves. In other words, for the majority of our lives, there's this disorientation. That is, what drives the most of our issues? Why we're angry, why we're fearful, Becker says the reason is because we don't know who we are. Becker himself, he proclaims in large, he self-proclaimed secular man in large part. He says that most of what drives us is this quest to find meaning. Why am I here? Jesus Christ says, I have an answer. I have the answer. And this particular teaching is found in all four books of the Gospels. And so his answer must be very important. And Jesus here says, you want to find yourself? Here's the answer. Take up your cross and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous Lutheran minister. uh, He was executed in Germany during World War II. He says this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What does that mean? And the answer is in this passage. And it's laid out very neatly in three acts in this narrative. So we have three acts, three points. The points go like this. Jesus Christ prays of Peter. That's in verse 13. And then his rebuke of Peter, which begins in verse 21. That's with an incident. And then the teaching that follows in verse 24. So we have the praise of Peter, the rebuke of Peter, and then the teaching that follows. First, we have Jesus Christ and his praise of Peter. It begins in verse 13. Jesus asks his disciples, he says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they respond. They say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, his answer is absolutely remarkable. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. What does that mean? What Peter is saying here is you're not just a prophet. All the other prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah, even John the Baptist, they pointed ahead to a day of salvation, but not you. You always point to yourself. All the other prophets, they, they, they teach and then they say, uh, they conclude, declares the Lord. They give a teaching and they say, declares the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. In ancient times, the rabbis, they would teach and the people would listen and they would listen to what the rabbi has to teach and they would validate the rabbi and they would say, amen. What that means is, uh, I t- I, I've heard you, I validate this truth as of God. Thus saith the Lord, but not Jesus Jesus Christ, he always began teaching with amen. He says, I tell you the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you. That's what he says. In other words, Jesus says, I am the truth. All the other prophets, they point to the truth. I don't need validation. My words have authority. I am the author. I am the truth. Prophets, they always point to a way to reconcile to God. Jesus always pointed to himself. He says, no man comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Peter's confession, it's remarkable. 
And so Jesus blesses Peter. In verse 17, he says, he says, this is from God. This had to have been revealed by the Father. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. The Greek word here is Petra. He's saying, on Peter, Peter, you are a living stone. And on you, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants, they disagree with what Jesus actually means by that. On this rock, I will build my church. But both sides agree. Whether you come from a Roman Catholic background or from a Protestant background, it doesn't matter. Both sides agree that if you do not agree with Peter's confession on the true identity of Jesus Christ, you're very, very far from the makings of a foundational faith in Christ. What does that mean? Every other religion, the leader says, you want salvation? Well, here's a teaching. Here's how you do it. You got to do this, and then you got to do this, and then you got to do this. Jesus Christ is the only leader that says salvation doesn't come through striving, by working hard, but by receiving, by beholding. Jesus says, I came to strive so that you can receive. And until you get that, you're not in the church. You are not a Christian. Jesus says, praise of Peter. One of the most remarkable praises ever said to anyone, it reveals who he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's his real identity. Now, the second point is Jesus' rebuke of Peter. It's interesting because whenever Jesus talks to someone who's morally or socially marginalized, he talks to the poor people or he talks to a prostitute, he calls them friend. He calls them daughter. But to, oftentimes to a religious person, to a teacher of the law, he's much harsher. He calls them hypocrites. But nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever call anyone what he calls Peter in this passage. Verse 23, he says, you are Satan. And this, after receiving the greatest praise that Peter could ever receive from Jesus, Jesus practically curses him. And he does it in public. Now, you would never curse somebody like that, at least in public, unless you wanted other people to see it. So this was very intentional. It was a lesson. It was a teaching. Peter says, you, you are the son of the living God. He's, he, what he's saying is, you are beautiful. You are the majestic king of glory. And Jesus says, yes. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. And he, conf he confirms it. He, he references Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He says, the son of man will come in his father's glory. But what happens next? Verse 21 from that time on, what that means is from that period on, Jesus presents his plan. Here is how I will restore the world. Here is how I will defeat evil. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die, and I will be raised again. In other words, I will defeat evil not through strength, but through weakness. I will defeat evil not through, not through might, not through power, but through surrender. Not through might, but through brokenness. Peter says, you are the son. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus Christ, he's being baptized. The heavens open up. The spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, with whom I delight in. Peter says, you are the son that the prophet spoke about. But Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I am the suffering servant. I am the son, yes, but I'm going to suffer as a servant of God. I am the man of sorrows that the prophet spoke about. 
Like in Isaiah 53, he says, he would be oppressed, stricken for his people. It's a completely new way of viewing God. Everyone was expecting the prophet. Everyone was expecting the son of God who would come and devour evil and restore the world. And Jesus says, yes, I am that prophet, and yet I will suffer, and I will die. I will be oppressed. I will be rejected. I will be stricken. I will be the sacrifice. Peter says, no, the, the God delights in you. God delights in his son. Jesus says, I am delightful because I gave up my beauty. I am delightful because I will defeat sin by becoming sin. I'm going to defeat sin by becoming a sacrifice. Peter says, no, I will never let this happen to you. And Jesus responds, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. The literal word, the Greek word here is scandalon. You are temptation to me. Why? Matthew chapter 4. You have Jesus, he's in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus three times. Three times he tempts Jesus. The first, he says, I want you to turn these stones to bread because Jesus hasn't eaten. He had been fasting. And he says, I want you to turn these stones to bread. In other words, indulge yourself for once, Jesus. Just for once, indulge yourself. Self-satisfaction, bread. The second thing he says is, Throw yourself down from this place. Essentially because God will protect you. Won't God protect you? What he's saying is, for once, preserve yourself. Protect yourself. Lastly, he says, I can give you all this wealth, all the kingdoms of the world. You can have power. Fulfill yourself. Be self-accomplished. Fulfill yourself. What Satan was saying to Jesus is, don't you see? You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. I can give you all these things. You can have all these things. I can give it to you without ever going to the cross, without ever suffering. All three temptations revolved around yourself without suffering, without the cross, without sacrifice. And each time Jesus responds with the word of God and he says, no, 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 no. And when Peter says, no, you can't suffer, you can't go to the cross, Jesus Christ rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me. You are just like Satan. You are tempting me to do the very thing that Satan himself was tempting me to do in the wilderness, to to become a king without suffering, to become a king without ever going to the cross. I came to, to suffer. I came to die. I came to suffer. What he's saying here is, in verse 18, your confession, in verse 18 he says, your confession, it had to have come from God. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Your confession had to have come from God. But then, verse 23 says, you don't have in mind the things of God. You don't have in mind the things of God here. Don't try to fit me into your view, your version, your idea of greatness. Because your idea of greatness has no room for suffering. Only comfort. Only indulgence. Only self-fulfillment. Only self-preservation. Your idea of greatness has no room for suffering, no room for trouble, no room for grief, no room for sorrow, no room for trial, no room for discomfort, no room for uncertainty. You're not thinking about God. You're thinking like men. Don't you know that, Peter? Don't you know that the way to victory is through defeat? The way to victory, the ultimate victory is through sacrifice, 
The only way you're ever going to be able to fill yourself completely is by emptying yourself. The only way that you're ever going to, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to die because the kingdom of God advances through suffering and humiliation and death. He's saying, I didn't go to the cross so that you won't ever go to the cross. That's immature. That's spiritual immaturity. That's actually unreal. It's unreal to say that Jesus died so that really bad things won't ever happen to me. Because if you believe that, it's going to lead you to despair. It's going to lead you to anger. It's going to lead you to bitterness. The essence of Christian maturity is to understand that if the kingdom of God advanced and advances through Jesus' suffering and humiliation and death, then it's going to advance through your suffering and humiliation and death. And when you understand that, Jesus says, now you will be able to find yourself. How does that happen? So you have this praise of Peter, his confession, what he says about Jesus. And Jesus says, on this rock, you are living stones who confess that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the Christ. On you, these living stones, I will build my church. Then you have the rebuke of Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind the things of men. All you think about is self-indulgement. Your idea of power is through might and through strength and through just subverting over other people, stepping all over people to get ahead. The kingdom of God does not advance that way. It advances through loss, being a lost cause, through defeat, through suffering, through humiliation, through death. It's remarkable what he's saying here, isn't it? Remarkable. How does it happen? The last point, we have the teaching. In our world today, there are two ways that you can define yourself. The first way is the traditional approach, what some would call the Eastern approach. A lot of us, Eastern here, right? The traditional Eastern approach. It's through family. It's through responsibility. You find yourself through loyalty and duty. Your decisions are never your own because you never diverge from your family. You never diverge from the collective. You never diverge from the village. You never, so you must sacrifice, and that's the operative word. Sacrifice, suck it up, sacrifice duty. So in order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. The second way of defining yourself is what we call the modern approach, the Western approach. All of us here, Western, right? It's what we call self-discovery. Remember the movie Sabrina? You probably don't remember the movie Sabrina. It's an old movie, Audrey Hepburn movie, right? This unattractive, naive, low-class teenager moves out of her context and goes to Paris. And when she's in Paris, there she discovers the arts. There she discovers culture. She's away from her family and the way that all the the collective and her neighborhood viewed her. She's away from all that. So she really starts to blossom. And she discovers culture and music and the arts and calling and love. And so what what does she say? She says, I found myself in Paris. What does that mean? I found myself through self-indulgement, through self-fulfillment, There in Paris, I discovered who I really am, my real potential, my real options. The world is my oyster, my real freedom. 
A lot of people move to the city to find themselves, don't they? Don't we all? The traditional approach is to lose yourself through duty. The modern approach is to find yourself through your desires. Here, Jesus Christ is saying, I want you to have an identity. He talks about spiritual finding. Right? He says, if whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's what he says. He says, I want you to have an identity, but you cannot have a true identity apart from me. He says, verse 25, I want you to lose yourself for me. Whoever loses himself for me will find himself. The only way that you can truly find yourself is if you lose yourself for him. Verse 24, he says, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. Lose yourself, Right? He doesn't leave it there. He says he must deny himself, take up his cross, suffering, and follow me. Build your life around the pattern of my suffering and death. He doesn't say, I want you to look for suffering. He says, I want you to just build your life around the pattern of my life and death. And then you will discover who you really are. Another way of saying that is, I want you to look at the cross. And let the cross shape everything you do, everything you believe, everything you think. Notice, Jesus, he doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to deny yourself and just die because then you would have completely lost yourself. He doesn't say that. However, he doesn't also just say, I suffer so that you would never suffer. I picked up the cross, right? So just follow me. He doesn't say that either. Jesus Christ suffered so that when you suffer and when you build your life around the pattern of his suffering, in your suffering, everyone here, who here is not suffering? Everyone here has a suffering. He says, I want you to take that suffering and I want you to build your life around the pattern of my death. And then you will discover who you really are because then you can become like him. And only when you realize that Jesus took care of the ultimate guilt, the ultimate condemnation, the ultimate suffering, then you will find out who you really are. You will find yourself. How does this happen? First, just a couple practical things, and they're remarkable, and they're kind of in progression, so you're going to have to listen to me carefully. First, how do you find yourself? First, you have to stop saving yourself. Notice Jesus doesn't say, whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. That's not what he says. In other words, it's not just about saving yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. Rather, he says, whoever loses his life for me will find it. Stop trying to save yourself through your good behavior, through a good reputation, through your good looks or your figure. Stop trying to save yourself with your pedigree to be acceptable to God, to be acceptable before other people. You know why we so desperately try to be acceptable in front of other people? Because cosmically we know that at one point in our lives we have become out of sorts with God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been driven out of his presence. And because of that, we so desperately want to get back in. And that's why we, we have an innate cosmic desire to just get in with people, to get into the circle, to get into community. Stop trying. You've got to fight the impulse to define yourself that way. When someone, you know, nobody more than a pastor or your president is going to have his character attacked on a daily or weekly basis. And when that happens to me, what do you think? You think I'm made of, of a brick wall? Of course it's going to make me down. I have a pastor friend who once came to me and said, you know, when someone attacks you, 
when someone attacks your character, you make it sound as if you were called here because of your character in the first place. You make it sound you were, as if you were called here because of your record or your merit. No. You live on the basis of Christ's merit. You live on the basis of Jesus' character. So stop trying to feed this impulse to save yourself. Next, second thing we got to do is then stop trying to be strong. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to be strong. Stop trying to be mighty. Stop trying to subvert. The world says, here's what you do. You want to find yourself? You got to build. You got to build because you're like a weak vessel right now. You're kind of small. You're immature. You need to build knowledge. You need to grow. So it starts with a college education. And you got to build and you got to go to the best colleges because the best colleges will give you a great start. And then you got to accumulate from there. Build, accumulate wealth, build power, build title, build degrees, build this pedigree of yours. And then at the right stage, find somebody who you're going to love and just enjoy the rest of your life because that's another form of building. But think about this. The most powerful man in the universe who had no insecurity, no needs, he was never needy. Why did he come? What more could he have needed? He came to give up power. And yet he was raised again. Why? I mean, he came to give up power all the way to the point of death, and yet he was raised again. Why? Because his hope, because his salvation was not built around his power. And that means when you fail, when you're down, he, he, was, he didn't need it. He gave it up. He didn't need the title. He gave it up. That's not what defined him. So when you fail, or when you're down, when you're guilty, when you're suffering, these are crucibles in which you can become like Christ. And why? Because Jesus suffered. Because Jesus Christ suffered. The cross reveals who you really are. You know why? It gives you the ultimate reality of a picture of yourself. It's not, it's not a painting. Paintings are distorted. Caricatures, very distorted. Paintings are still distorted. They're not three-dimensional. This gives you a mirror, a picture of who you really are. On one hand, when you look at the cross, you see your real self. You see your guilt. You see your real sin. All the stuff that no one ever sees. There's a story about a pastor. One day, his community, uh, his, his congregation brought him into the center, and they just basically spewed out all the things they didn't like about him. They thought it was wise to do that. They thought it would be healthy for him to do that. So they put him in the middle, and they just started hurling all his deficiencies, everything that he lacked, and he just sat there, and he just took it. And at the end, they said, do you have anything to say for yourself? You haven't said a single word. We've been just hurling insults at you for an hour. What have you to say for yourself? He looked up, he smirked, and he said, I'm just glad that's all you know. I'm just glad that's all you know. When you look at the cross, you see who you really are, your real guilt, your real sin, all of it. And it's so big that Jesus had to die for you. Jesus had to die for us. That should humble you. And Jesus Christ, he's so humble. He is the humble king. He came to give his life. You becoming like Christ. On the other hand, when you look at the cross, you see the love of Christ. You see the compassion of Christ. Everyone here, you would only die. Think about the things that you would die for. Now, I know some of us say, oh, I would die right now for, for this, or I'd die right now for this. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, think about the one or two things in your life that you would truly die for 
Is there anything in your life that you would really die for? Think about the one thing in your life that you would really die for. You would only die for the things you treasure. Things you treasure. I mean, you love your career. Would you die for your career? Would you die for your career? You would only die for the things that you ultimately treasure. What does this mean? What does the cross mean? There is your proof of your sinfulness. And there is the reality, the proof of God's love that he treasures his people, that you are treasured by God, that Jesus Christ loves his people. Until you see how God, how embraced you are by the Father, you will never be able to look at your real self. You will never be able to look at yourself in a realistic way. All of your flaws, that will strengthen you. There's no greater courage. And Jesus, he is so courageous, so confident, so resilient, so persevering. He has such poise. How do you develop that poise? You got to look to the cross. You see your real self. Most of us spend a lifetime frantically covering up our flaws, frantically denying our flaws. You know how we do that? We look to other people because there's always every fool has another fool they can look to to say that they're foolish. Every sinful person has another sinner that you can say, well, at least I'm like this person, right? You know, you start out, you say, well, you know, I, I, you know, you did something wrong. Well, at least I'm not like that person in the church. That person, now, he is a horrible person, okay? And then you go to that person. That person says, well, you know, you're, you're, you have, you're a terrible person. Well, but at least I'm not like, you know, the mafia. You know, they're greedy and they're, they're murderers. Then you go to the mafia and you say, well, you know, you're, you're horrible, you're greedy, and you're a murderer. And they say, well, yeah, but at least I'm not like a serial killer. At least I have a, you know, I have a reason for why I do what I do. But these serial killers, they, they, they just kill on their own accord for their own reasons, for their own purposes. You go to a serial killer, and a serial killer says, you know, you're a horrible person. Serial killers say, well, yeah, I'm horrible, but at least I'm not like Hitler. Hitler is always the end point, right? At least I'm not like Hitler, and then you go to Hitler and you say, well, you're a horrible person. Hitler says, well, Hitler, he doesn't, you know, what is Hitler? Hitler's, who's he going to blame? But I can guarantee you, he's got somebody that he can blame. He's, no one's going to sit there and say, how do you get there? No one's going to sit there and say, well, yes, you got me. I am a sinner. I am exactly who you say you are. The cross gives us a realistic per- picture of the reality of who we are. When you don't see the cross, you're going to spend your life frantically trying to cover up your flaws. And we do it by blame shifting. We do it by justifying ourselves. We do it by just subverting and stepping all over other people. We do it by accumulating wealth and power. We do it by just a frantic need for sex and sexual relationships because those conquests help us to feel better about ourselves. We do it by all sorts of stupid things, right? We can think of some, something and we can make it a competition. That's what we do. But when you look at the cross and see your sin, that it's greater than you could ever dare imagine. And there you see that God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater than you would ever dare hope that our lives are hid with Christ on high. On one hand, it's going to humble you. Seeing your sin is going to break you. You're becoming more like Christ. But when you know that God sent his only son to die for you, 
There goes the blaming. How can you blame another person? There goes the excuse making. How can you make excuses? There goes the lying. When you come before the cross, there goes the lying. How can you lie about your sinfulness? How can you do that? There's the reality. There's the picture. The Son of Man has come to die, to suffer and die for our sins. And so you've got to stop trying to save yourself. You've got to stop trying to be strong. Thirdly, you're gonna, when you stop trying to be strong, when you stop trying to save yourself, you're actually going to become stronger and freer. When you stop trying to be strong, you know, when you try to be strong, your incompetencies are going to define you. When you try desperately to be strong, you know what's going to happen in front of you? All you're going to see are your inconsistencies. And it's going to bring you down. It's going to press on you. Because it's constantly trying to define you and you're, all your life, you're just going to be frantically trying to battle that and fight that. When you stop trying to do that, then you become free. Then you become stronger. Verse 26, Jesus says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Well, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? That's what he asks. What he's saying is here, if your main pursuit in life is to have a great career, to build up your status, to build up your reputation, to build up children in your life, and, and you have this great, robust life. If that's your goal in your life, right, you think you're strong, but in actuality, you're under the influence. Right? You're, you're under control of something else. And that's going to make you weak. Think about this. If you're, here's a, take a man. His salary is $500,000 a year. And he places his self-worth in that. All his life has been to just continue to build. And so he's finally worked up his salary to make $500,000 a year. And then there's an economic recession and he loses his job. Somewhere down the road, somebody's going to get cut. And he, had to get, he didn't make the cut. So he loses everything. He loses his job. Because, because he's placed his self-worth in $500,000 a year and he's lost $500,000 a year, he's lost everything. He's lost his job. But he's lost, more importantly, he lost himself. He's gained the world, and yet he's lost himself. Do you see that? Jesus Christ says, I want you to build the pattern of your life around what I paid to have you, around what I've done to have you. Let that be the source of your worth. There will never be a recession of that. You will never be a depression in that. You will never have enough of that. It will always be abundant. God's love is overabundant. It will be more than sufficient for you. It's not just enough. Jesus didn't die so you would have just enough to get you by. He's overflowing in his grace and his love. Then you can look at anything, any type of suffering, anything and say, yeah, you can look at any blessing and you can say, yes, these things are blessings. These things are good. It's not wrong to make that kind of money. It's a good thing, but they are not the ultimate thing in my life. They do not define me. And so if I ever lose it, I will not lose my life. I still have a self. I still have an identity. How do you learn that? You know how you learn that? You're going through it. It's through your suffering. It's through your suffering. The cord one day gets pulled. And the things that once gave you power, the things that once gave you strength, it's gone. The cord's been pulled. There's no more power. And so you lose strength. But it's that kind of loss that actually leads to life. Do you see that? Our suffering helps us to realize when we've actually lost ourselves to gain the world. 
And so we need to lose these things. We need to lose the world in order to gain ourselves back. When you're suffering, you can remember Jesus. Did he not suffer? The Son of God who suffered for our sakes. That's the real suffering. Real suffering, you know what real suffering is in our lives? You know, you're out there in the heat and humidity. If you don't like it, East Coasters, right? We have a lot of humidity. That's suffering. But that's not real suffering. The real suffering is when you say, I can't help myself. I've been desperately trying, and I cannot help myself. I cannot protect myself. I cannot save myself. I'm just broken. Ah, but when that happens, when that happens, it helps you to be free from the things that were really killing you. Do you get that? That were really making you weak. The things that were are holding you down like an anchor. Now that cord has been plugged and pulled. And now you can float to the surface again. Do you see that? When you come to the cross, you see what Jesus gained in exchange for his soul, right? Jesus didn't just risk his life for your soul. He exchanged his life. He exchanged his identity. He exchanged, he gave up his soul. He gave up his spirit. Do you see that? Jesus had this intimate relationship with the Father. The Father delighted in his Son, and Jesus Christ, ever confident, he knew exactly who he was. John chapter 13, he knew who he was and, and that he would go back to where he came from, where, that he would be going back to the Father. He knew who he was. He knew himself. And yet he came to the earth, he came down, and he emptied himself of all of his glory. And on the cross, he lost his job. He lost his place. He lost his status. He lost his position and ultimately lost his life. He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He lost his life in exchange for your soul, for my soul. On the cross, when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost myself. My God has forsaken me. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And so when he departed from him, he's saying the Trinity has fallen apart. And I am falling apart. I've lost myself. I've literally lost myself. The Trinity have been torn apart. Plunge your failures Plunge your guilt. Plunge your sin. The things that we used to say, I can't kick this. I can't beat this. Plunge your failures in the person of Christ on the cross and see how loved you are. See how embraced you are. See how imperfect you are. See how sinful you are. See how broken you are. And see how beautiful Jesus is and how kingly Jesus is and how perfect he is. And when you see that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate suffering for you, you see who you are in him. Your life, your life is hid with Christ on high. That's going to birth in you a new love for Jesus. Isn't, look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the compassion of Christ. We're looking at a passage where Peter is calling his best friend Satan, and yet we're sitting here and saying, even there, look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the compassion of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. It's going to birth in you a new love for Jesus. It's going to renew your desire to serve Jesus. It's going to, that's called humility. It's going to give you a humility like Jesus. It's going to give you a new confidence because of Jesus. And then you will discover amazing new things about yourself. Life apart from Jesus, you're going to learn a lot of things about yourself. And so you're going to cling to Christ. And that's going to burst in you a new joy. And you're going to be free. And the cord has been cut. The cord of the world has been cut. So even though it's still sitting there, you know, you buy this brand new TV, 
right? You cut the cord, there's no power in that TV, but you still have it, right? It's still yours. All these things are yours, but they don't define you. It's not the way you view the world anymore. Do you see that? That's new power. That's new strength. That's real strength. Giving by giving up, by relinquishing, by sacrifice, by dying. Do you see that? When Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Once you were controlled by the world, now you surrendered the world to gain Christ. Do you see that? And it's going to make you resilient. It's going to make you resilient. You're going to view your suffering very differently. Why? Because Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate suffering. You're going to, you're going to view your failures differently. You know why? Because you're taking the king of the world on a cross, humiliated. That's failure. To the world, that looked like failure. The ultimate failure. What does that teach you? That in your failure, if Jesus Christ himself was raised in his failure, through the failure, it had to happen that way, surely God hasn't given up on you. And he will never. He will never overwork you. He will never give up on you. Those failures will be used to bring you closer to him. Surrender to Christ. Surrender to Jesus. Take Jesus in and surrender to him. Come to the table today. You can, it's a place of humility because of our sin. But we get to feast. You know, this table, and the reason why it's set up as a table for us is because it is a celebration, a feast. Anytime you have this many people in your house with a meal, that's a party. That's a celebration, isn't it? That's what the meaning of this is. Come to the table. It's a place of humility because we're here because of our sin, and yet we're here because of God's grace. And so we celebrate the person of Christ, and we celebrate the work of Christ. Who do you say he is? Let's pray together.